This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Hello, this is Lynn of Lynn and Jen, and let's talk about sex. And we have a really interesting subject, I think, for today. This is a, a discussion about backlash or sexual backlash, really backlash against the sexual advancement of women and the issues related uh, specifically to harassment. From my perspective, Jen, this is a very exciting time to observe this, and it's really a movement that's taking place. Well, I think exactly. It's a movement and it's exciting. And we have to be prepared, I think, for the way the pendulum swings. A lot of times when you're when you're creating a movement or when you're part of a movement, there's also a pushback movement. And I think what we're going to be talking about today is really focusing on how do you deal with that pushback so you can keep that movement going. Some of our listeners have suggested we give three kind of takeaway points, uh, you know, whether we're dealing with ideas or thoughts, which is a lot of our program, or really direct action plan strategies. And this is a little of both. I think we have to be aware of thinking about this backlash, anticipating it. Certainly, uh, I was reading the paper this morning about uh, Mr. Weinstein, and he had known, I think, what would happen when the article started coming out. So he worked very hard to prevent it, even before this effort took place. But it's that kind of strategy, we have to think ahead and realize that, that there has to be, uh, and there is a response to this type of movement that's taking place. Well, I think that's true. And, and to be able to address it or figure out ways to address that, because a lot of times the backlash comes from a place where the underlying beliefs, they're really not founded in facts or truth. And I think being able to address that and really look at how do we approach this from a different perspective so that we're really supporting people and feeling that they can join in with the movement that we are trying to push forward and being able to have that discussion, that conversation. Right. And I think women are afraid really to participate sometimes in certain movements because of concern about backlash. I think there's always really been a backlash against women in American culture, that it's been prevalent the whole time in on in unconscious ways and many, many other ways. There was a book written in the early 90s by Susan Faludi, actually entitled Backlash, which addressed the uh, response to the feminist movement of the 70s and 80s. And part of that was a distinct uh, uprising and discrediting of, of the feminist movement, really, in the U.S. and led to, I think, a lot of your generation thinking, I'm not so sure I want to be part of this, the whole thing. Well, I think there's always that fear, and it's about coming together and finding your allies so you realize you're not alone. 
I think that that observation about it being there, it's certainly not just in the U.S. I think it's a product of the patriarchal system. And when you have a system like that in place, of course, the people that benefit from the system are not inherently going to want to challenge it. And I think that's what creates a lot of the backlash a lot of times is I noticed two different things. I think one of the big things is that there are people benefiting from the system. And so for them, they don't want to change that system. And then I think for other people, it's it's that some people are just resistant to change because it's so terrifying to deal with the unknown and they don't know how to cope with that. And so they either consciously or unconsciously would rather deal with the current system as it functions because they can predict it. I think we're seeing this around our Congress, where we're really looking at, you know, many men are stepping down at this point, secondary to long histories of abuse, you know, 40, 50 years, the representative from uh, Detroit, you know, that area. Um, it's just amazing uh, to see some of the movements that are taking place and the thoughts that are going on. And there is, I think, uh, you know, mar and a backlash being marshaled around some of these leaders. They really are, I think, strategizing, but I think they also don't know what to do at this point either. They're at a loss for the first time, I think, with some of this. Well, I think they're being challenged to question how things have been. And just as a therapist, you know, we're often working with clients and trying to elicit change and help them want to make those changes and a lot of the times what I see is, you know, maybe somebody feels good about what they're doing in session and then they go home and try to implement these different changes and they get the pushback. I don't know that backlash is the correct word for that, but certainly there is that pushback. And I think it's a very similar type of thing, but on a larger scale with society where when you are trying to change something, there are people who resist it simply because of it being a change and it making them uncomfortable. I think absolutely. There's that group that, you know, we used the word complicit last time and yeah. they don't want to fight back. They're afraid. They're fearful. There's so many resistances to change. I think what interests me about this particular process are so many things, but I think because women who are coming forward are describing how they've been victimized it's really harder to go after them directly at this point. Initially, there was the discussion, well, they're all lying, and that was the attack that was taken. But now it's recognized how few women actually come forward with false disclosures. You know, and they've tried to prove it. Even Weinstein, who was in the paper today, was trying to get women to come to various papers with false disclosures, the National Enquirer and different things. So you see how this had been anticipated. But because this is the truth, as you put it, and it's finally being recognized as such, we're really in a, a different point. So I'm curious about how the backlash is going to come forward. One way is through the laws, because the laws are set up to not protect women, really. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a huge problem that we're dealing with. And I think it's a huge reason why a lot of women didn't come forward, because I think when you're coming forward, you're weighing the consequences of that, because there are huge consequences. And if you don't feel that there is a system that is really there to support you, 
then sometimes it makes more sense for you personally to not come out about it in that moment. And I think that's one of the questions that I talk about with my friends a lot is really about when, when you're working with a system. I think a lot of people say the system is broken. And I've kind of started to take a different stance in the sense that the way I look at it, the system isn't broken. The system just wasn't built for all these people. So the system is working fine for its original purpose. And so I think it really becomes a question of do you work within the system? Do you work without, with, like outside of that system? But it's really understanding that on a fundamental level, the system is designed to protect the people that are abusing. And it's not broken in that sense. Uh, you know, I think this is a very good way to put it. I've worked for a university, university medical school for decades, and that system was largely built, I think, too, to protect professors who have tenure, mostly men in tenured positions, against this type of, uh, you know, onslaught or attack as they view it. And there were many parts of the university that play a role in this construction and protection. And it works fine, I think, for those male professors in that regard. But if you're a woman faculty coming forward with an allegation of harassment, it is, does not work in your favor. It may listen to you but there's a channel that you're really put off onto that really doesn't go into the mainstream and your career is thwarted with this type of, of action that's taken. So there is a system in place, but it really is a system working for a different group. I think the question is, what's going to happen now that this group is being dismantled? And I think this is a question about Congress. This morning in the Times is really about, is it going to be all the men in Congress, who will be there? And I guess from our perspective in California, we think, well, Pelosi, Feinstein, they'll be there. You know, there'll be a few women left. But it is, it's a good question about what's going to happen. I think it's an important question to ask. And it brings me back to some of what started this discussion between you and I in the first place, which is really Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook wrote a post on Facebook about what we need to do and preparing for this backlash. And she was talking about how with the backlash, there are going to be a lot of men who are saying, well, obviously, the solution is just not to hire women. And she was obviously arguing differently and saying, no, the solution is to hire more women and to have policies in place that really the companies work to protect the people who are raising these allegations. And that I think that it be considered a more just system where everybody really has a chance and feels like there is due process. I actually wonder if the part of the decision, we're speculating whether it's Cheryl or ourselves here, but if more women might not be hired in some professions because there's they're less likely to abuse. So I think you could look at it really either way. You could think the men want to protect their system. They will think of any women are there, they're going to be accused or there's going to be allegations and it's going to go that way. Or it could go the other way. You know, women have very low rates of abuse. So having them as an employee, you're not certainly not going to have this problem involved. I mean, I think that raises a challenging question for me because I think there is a belief that women don't abuse as much as men. And I think in the ways that we're measuring abuse, that's accurate. But I, from experiences that I have working with male clients, I don't necessarily think that is the case. 
Well, the men we see, I think many who come into therapy, many have experiences where they have been abused both by men and by women. But I think the studies really strongly support uh, higher rates of abuse by men. Now, I think the question, and uh, this has actually been raised, is, is it because men have more power? Right. And it's the power itself, which puts you in an inherent position to abuse. I'm not sure we know the answer to that yet. Yeah, I don't think we do. But I think it's important to hold that into account. And it's not an excuse to just say, okay, don't hire women, right? Like, that's not what I'm saying at all. But I think it is really important to take into account that a lot of times in changing people are falling into these black and white holes where they're saying like, well, obviously, the solution is you hire women, and this is going to solve the problem. But speaking along those lines, when when women and men are interviewed about who they would rather have as a boss, Statistics show that both men and women would rather have a male boss. And what is the reason for that? Is that because of, again, appreciating the system, wanting to be part of it, all of that? I, I, you know, I think immediately it would be related to that. Maybe a male is seen as having more power and would be more helpful to you. So that question, you know, I'd really raise. I want to go back, though, to what you were saying about the abuse I think that women have power over children, and they're in positions of power as often the primary caregivers, certainly teachers and child care people, and their rates of abuse are decidedly less. You know, it's really roughly about 5% of all child abusers are women, 95% are men. And if you look at that, again, I think it speaks to the question Will women, given the chance, abuse power over others? They do not appear to with respect to children. Small group do, but the rest do not. So I'd raise that question. Of course, this may be about how women are raised, you know, in terms of appreciating the power balance. It's a it's a good area to really look at. Well, that's what I was going to say is I think a big part of this is really going to be we have to change our values on a societal level in order to be able to have a system that just does not support abuse and does not allow it to be hidden or covered up and really calls people out on that behavior. Because I think women are socialized to think more about the people around them, and that creates a different kind of culture. And I think that men can do the same thing. They can be raised with those same values, and then they don't go on to abuse either. So if we're thinking about thought or action points that our listeners could take away, one would be that looking at childcare development, the balance between boys and girls and power, how they're treated you know, what type of abuse takes place with children, that's an indicator, something really important to watch and to be careful about. Yeah, I think it is something to be careful about. And I think it's somewhere that we feel we can take action, you Mm -hmm. know, and that's really important in all of this. I think it can be very overwhelming. But what's reassuring about Sheryl Sandberg's Facebook post is it's also very action oriented. It's talking about the policies and how you need to have policies in these corporate or not just corporate, but in offices in in to support the employee and the employer, but really just creating a culture where abuse and harassment is not okay. And everything, all the steps that are 
involved support that. I think universities could really benefit by some of the the same kind of standards that Sandberg is really aligning. That they need programs that better protect women who are coming forward. They need to look at the hierarchy. You know the tenured professors, which are largely male. They need to think about rotation of chair people. You know, to female chairs and female deans. So there's a lot of things that could be reexamined in that area that would establish the sort of system you're talking about. Well, I think I also question building on that. I definitely agree with you. I think building on that is. I really question internal investigations because <laughs> a lot of times, you know, in the news you read about these things, and it says an internal investigation was conducted, and the conclusion was that the abuse didn't happen. And I think the fact that this happens so often just really makes me start thinking about: well, when it's an internal investigation, what are the connections there, and how is it that that can be an unbiased process? Well. Two two comments about that.、Uh, I couldn't agree with you more, Jen, about that because, with respect to the universities and the medical schools, I've certainly seen these internal investigations. I was actually subjected to one thirty five years ago, and I certainly have many many patients going through them. They are not helpful, really not helpful. I think it's important to really look at that system, and look at how you can get outside investigations really incorporated as part of it.、Um, in universities, they often just reaffirm; they try to silence the abuser through listening to her. You know, they provide ombuds persons and a whole range of different things, so she's heard. But the、uh, the punishments or the redress with the abuser really do not take place. They don't move forward. And just recently, this week, got a young patient, eighteen years old. She had been abused in a school setting, and they were going to do a second internal investigation.、Uh, same purpose. There's a lot of control. They control that arm of the investigation. So I think that has to be looked at. What type of investigative body could be active? I'm a huge fan of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. When I had my own lawsuit、uh, against the University Medical School 35 years ago, they found class action for all of the women involved with this. They did a separate investigation that really was independent, and it was amazing. It had a lot of power. Well, I think it had a lot of power, and we've talked about this before, where、yeah. women need to be able to have that power to even combat the system. I think what's so fascinating to me, other than just the finding, is I remember you were discussing with me about how there was also sexual harassment involved. But they、yes. really didn't think you could go for that because it wasn't really known or respected as a real problem at the time. And this is is very important. I'm so glad you bring this up, Jen. It's sad for me now.、Yeah. I think to address this because,、um, with respect to the university at that time, this was in the middle '80s, and it was before Anita Hill.、Uh, just to say a little bit about it. I actually won a, a class action sexual discrimination claim, which is a huge thing. But、um, the sexual harassment pieces had been moved out、uh, largely because of uh, concern uh, that uh, they would not be listened to. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. I just 
I think it's unfortunate, but I think it's also really important to talk about understanding that all of that was going on in the environment that was created there. Because I think that's part of what's going on now is people are recognizing sexual harassment itself without the abuse, without the discrimination to be a problem. Oh, yes. And I think it started with Anita Hill. I mean, discrimination was definitely part of it. Retaliation is part of it. They're, they're interwoven, really. There are ways that people in power keep women out of the system. You know, and harassment is a power gesture that really works in, in that particular way. But there's so many other parts to this. So they belong together. I had actually wanted to put the sexual harassment into the lawsuit, but I was convinced by my attorney and several others that I would not win and the case would go down, the class action case with that. And um, that shows you, I think, the awareness of at that time during the 80s and the concern about that, that it would immediately be thrown back on the women. They would be seen as sexual agents. This was the atmosphere really at that time. And I think for me, that's obviously a very tragic part of the yes. experience. Yes. I think it, the hope for me in that is is in seeing what's going on now, because I really feel like while we still have some of these systems in place, I think fundamentally people are working through changing. And this movement is really about getting people to acknowledge that the harassment itself really is a problem. Um, the biggest part, I think, of uh, backlash is also retaliation. Right. And having lived through 30 plus years of retaliation in that situation, I think one thing that Sandberg doesn't talk about is the need for legal action to really address these things. In the book, Lean In, it's as if you're in this setting, you lean in, you put pressure, it happens. Um, it would not happen without these lawsuits. It would not happen without changes in laws. And the first law to address this was Title VII in 1964, and uh, they really followed after that. But it's very, very important, I think, for legal action to be taken and the awareness that if you win these uh, suits and situation, you are treated differently. You are looked at, uh, you know, somewhat, I think, as a heroine, but also there's a negative side to it where people distance from you. And I think to be aware of that, to be really looking for that, and you yourself often carry post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms because the experience is significantly traumatic. So I think to be aware of that, the internal limitations of something like this and what's going to come from the outside, I don't think it should stop women at all. If anything, it should increase their fire. But I think be aware of getting help for yourself and be aware that the reactions that others give you are sometimes very surprising. And that's why I think community support, your personal community, but also on a societal level, really having that community support. And I think changing laws is one of the huge ways in which we change what we say is acceptable in our culture and not. Along the lines with the legal aspects, there was an article, uh, editorial in, in the New York Times this week about how the laws were modified in the 90s to really restrict. Um, there were some initial advances in women's issues in the 70s and 80s following Title VII. But again, men were the judges 
men made the case laws and they worked against women being advanced. So I think to be aware of the fact that even the legal system has to be overhauled because of the men are part of all of that. So my concern about some of these women's cases is that if they go to court, will they be thrown out as 95% of the cases have been? the discrimination cases over the last 25 years. I think it's a huge concern, and it's part of our backlash that we're talking about. So there are a lot of pieces of this, I think, for women to be aware of at this point. Well, I think, you know, this may seem like we're going off a little bit, but talking about you bringing up Anita Hill, under Clarence Thomas, when he was in charge of the EEOC, there were a lot less uh, less claims that were pushed forward. And I think that's that speaks to how these people that do abuse, when they get into these positions, it really does affect so many people because it really impedes the power avenues that you do have to make a difference. Absolutely. And just to, to think of someone like Clarence Thomas being in charge of the EEOC. You know, this is how our our agencies and are are really limited. I guess it's easier to think about now that we have Trump as a, you know, whether he's a certainly president in chief or we call him sometimes abuser in chief, but I think it's a concern really out there that these laws and or these organizations are affected from the very top. Oh, absolutely. And I mean you were talking about Harvey Weinstein as well. And I was reading this article that was just like so disgusting to me. I think it was in the New York Times that was outlining the different ways in which he built an empire to take other people down and the way he got other men to go along with him. And I think I don't want to make it just a men women issue because I've experienced bringing things up and having other women attack me. And I've had men that have supported me. So I I think it's really important because in our patriarchal society, a lot of these men at the top, the powerful people are men. But I also think we have to really break out of that mold and say, well, it's just people who are looking at the system and understanding and the people who are supporting change, regardless of your gender, we all need to support each other in that way. Absolutely. And to go, you bring up women's parts in this. And there was the recent commentary by Angela Lansbury, which is really back to the view that women are responsible for uh, sexual uh, abuse and harassment by their appearance, their demeanor, uh, a whole range of uh, aspects of what they present. This was also prevalent, this idea through the the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and which led to, let's not have harassment be part of my lawsuit. Uh, Angela's, uh, you know, substantially older than I am. And I respect many things she's done. You know, she's a pioneer woman in many ways. But many pioneer women, you know, played a part in a system. You know, that was the system they were working in, and the system that we're really working to change. Well, I'd be interested to hear because it was a snippet taken out of her interview. And I know how sometimes that can really be taken out of context. So I would love to hear that whole interview and hear kind of where she was going with that. Because 
to me, I think it's it's really important that we have this discussion. And I think there is this idea that women are really still the gatekeepers of sexuality. And so therefore, you know, if something is happening, you know, blame her because she's dressed a certain way or she's wearing makeup or, you know, I've seen Facebook attacks on people where, you know, a woman is wearing bright red lipstick and so she's slut shamed for that, you know. And so I think having this complex discussion is really important and being able to to create a message that really does get across what you're getting. Because I, I wonder what she was trying to say with that. You know, is that part of the good girl versus the bad girl dichotomy that is often played out? I think it's often a cautionary tale, you know, and the advice is, is meant to support you. If you want to go forward, then dress this way, act this way. This is how I succeeded. I think the problem is there are high rates of sexual harassment. And if you are then sexually harassed, you do not come forward with your story because you are worried you'll be slut shamed. You are worried you'll be seen as a bad girl. This slows down this whole process. And this has kept it one of the factors that's kept it silent for 30 years, really. Well, one of the differences that I've noticed is with my clients who have come out, they have a community that supports them and they have a sense that what they're doing is right for themselves and they don't necessarily carry the shame and they don't see themselves as being responsible for what happened to them. So when you bring it up, it's much easier to say this person engaged in these abusive behaviors and it was not my fault. I think there are a lot of clients that I work with that they struggle so much with coming out because some part of them, and it's part of what abusers do, it's part of the grooming, is some of them are so convinced that they did play that role and that they are to blame and therefore they feel very ashamed. And that reminds me of all the children we've talked about who've been abused, who then see themselves as having brought the abuse on themselves. And, you know, it's very sad, I think, how do you change that attitude and way of thinking about it? That's what I was getting at, too, with the symptoms of trauma that I think these individuals will suffer. Part of it is thinking, you know, the constructs uh, that come with that, that you blame yourself, you think you're a bad person, you think you brought it on yourself. These are all aspects of this type of disclosure to really be aware of. They certainly played a role in my life. But for most women and men who come forward and talk about abuse, this is a huge part of their life. Well, yeah, it's it's it so much affects who you feel you are as a person and whether you believe you're worthy of love, whether you believe you're worthy of belonging and whether whether who you are really is enough. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I want to bring up another point, too, in terms of what happens a lot of times when somebody does speak up, the backlash is to discredit that person. And so then I think, you know, you're already not feeling good about yourself and then you're being discredited. That just makes you want to go into hiding more. And then you have people that maybe you thought were your friends and when they turn against you, that's also painful. And so I think sometimes people protect themselves from that pain and they end up getting stuck in that trauma cycle. And part of uh, the trauma is to cut off your friends and cut off acquaintances because you don't want to hear those uh, voices or you're fearful that everybody will be that way and you become more paranoid and fearful. 
So I think to think about these things, maybe for more major points for our listeners today, I can think of a couple things we've really talked about. First, how we're unsure about what the total response to this will be. This is a change of a system that's been there a long time, and moving pieces are really in play. But I think to look forward to the positive aspects and to work for the positive aspects of this change is really, really important. I think what I would add to that is being able to anticipate what a backlash is going to be. Yes. Then you can be proactive about responding to that. And so I think that's a big part of what I like to help my clients understand is walking through, okay, hypothetically, let's say you're going to do this. What do you anticipate is going to happen? How can you protect yourself in this case? You know, how can you build allies? How can you reach out to people and really understand you're not alone? And I think there's so many things like the policies, talking about what to do in universities, you know, getting people to do outside investigations, all these different things. Because by looking at, I think a big part is because we have so much experience with this, we can then share that experience and say, look, when when there is a backlash, this is what tends to happen. And then you can proactively work with that. And I think as therapists in particular, we get a lot of insight into what that backlash is going to be. And a lot of the backlash resounds on the individuals coming forward. And that's the impact of the retaliation. That is the post-traumatic stress disorder. It's the internal response. So really getting help for yourself, recognizing your own symptoms, working to make yourself strong through this process, I think is a big, big part of it too. I think also being able to really start questioning some of those myths that people just take as factual. So for example, you know, one of the big things that Cheryl did mention around, you know, that men are just going to not hire women is really looking at, well, what does that mean then? If men are scared to be in the room with a woman, what does that mean about what they think about women what they think about how abuse and harassment happens. And really, because that's buying into this myth that women are just wanting to cry wolf and will just do, you know, will just call harassment on anybody. Well, that's part of the old system, really, that that is, that's how it was handled in universities. You shouldn't be in the room alone with a woman. You, these were the concerns and the rules that came up. But I, I agree with you. In a different world, you know, we're educated differently and we treat each other with respect and caring. And there's not the assumption that either one is really going to abuse the other with false allegations or real. So I, I think changing that process is very, very important. We don't need our doors open. We need to understand what to do when our doors are closed in our right, offices. Right, exactly. Really. Yeah. And I think, you know, what upsets me about that so much is that some people who are just kind of nodding their head and going, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I really want to challenge them to think about what does that mean? Because if you are worried about these things, it means you're buying into what the abusers are saying, which is that women lie. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we're ready. I guess you and I are at least thinking about the backlash, so we're ready. And I, I think to be aware that it, it's already in place, you know, even having this discussion with you, Jen, made me realize it's been going on 
you know, the backlash is in effect. It oh, it's been in effect. Faludi's book, and we're in the middle of the backlash. So really looking around and seeing what the components of it are and how we can help change it. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you. Come on. Let's talk about sex.